0: All right, all right. How y'all doing today? Good. All right, if you guys are at the back, can I just ask you to awkwardly move forward so we can fill up the front of this whole thing? Just move on up, move on up. If you can, that would be good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Michael. For you guys who don't know me, I am one of the leaders here at Youth and uh, for those of you who care and were here last week, a, a quick little update on my life. Uh, Ellen was uh, in the bathtub again, and uh, so I'm—I've kind of set a new purpose and goal for my life, which is to destroy the senior girls' community group. And. Uh, and honestly, it's, it's a terrifying thing. Uh, hopefully for all of us here who are regular attenders and we come here all the time and whatever, you guys have been keeping track on this whole thing we've been doing as youth in this whole Bible reading plan that you guys would read before we talk about whatever we're talking about. So this week you were to read uh, chapter 2, 1 to 11 because that's what we're talking about today. And next week you're reading all of chapter, the rest of chapter 2 and then uh, the first part of chapter 3. And we hope that you guys are keeping track with that so that when you come here, you know what we're talking about. And if you are one of those people today, then you know that today it is all about humility. That is what we are going to speak about today. And so I want to read it for you really quick. Eleven verses, let's all read through together. If you didn't read your Bible today, this does count. And, uh, and we will be able to do this and we will get going. So what it says. You have your Bibles, take them out. And if not, it's going to be in the sky. It says this, verse 1. This, those 11 verses right there that we just read out, are one of the most dense compiled verses and passages that we have in all of our Bibles. It is absolutely astonishing. This is one of the central pieces to, when I read the Bible, like my favorite, 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 favorite passages, because it it hits everyone in different ways. It makes everybody think something differently about themselves. It makes you check yourself. It makes you look at who you are and what you should be. It, It changes everything about what you think. And it uses this word constantly, humility, over and over and over and over and over again. And what it's trying to do is it's trying to give you this new definition, a redefinition of how you see God. The last couple weeks we've gone through pretty important things. The first week was the most important thing that you should do, is you should and must do as a Christian, is to keep God at the forefront of your minds. That has to be the thing that you do. The second thing is if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to follow him, the three things you got to do is you got to be with him, you got to become like him, and you have to do what he does. This week, the question that we have to view in all of this is the, the most important question that you can ask yourself, as in any individual living on earth, and it's what do you mean when you say the word God? What do you mean when you say the word God? So many people have these different perceptions of who God is, okay? I remember growing up and I had had two very clear views of how I saw God. The first one was I saw him as the enforcer, as the person who did all the rules and made sure that I was doing things right. He was, in my opinion, the epitome of this lady named Mrs. Goodfellow, and she was not a good fellow, okay? Um, Grade six, grade seven, grade five, she was like the thorn in my side. She was my tormentor, and I elementary school okay she was the liaison or the supervisor at recess and lunch and um, one day uh, we got and you got to imagine this, right? I grew up in Wally, super ghetto elementary school. When we got a, a, a swing set for the first time, it was it was the craziest party you've ever seen in your entire life. We were like, finally, we have something. We don't have to play with sticks. Like we were just jacked, like out of our face or whatever. So what they did was they built the swing set and they put gravel all over the floor and whatever. And uh, here we are, we're like getting jacked. Like, let's go on the swing set. Me and my boys are like, come on, let's go on the swings. And then what happens with swings, if you guys don't know, is you swing for like three minutes and then it gets boring. And if you're a dude, you see the gravel, and you start throwing the rocks at each other because that's way more fun. So we sit there and we start throwing these rocks at each other. We're like, yeah, oh my gosh, like I'm dodging it, Matrix. Oh my gosh, throwing these rocks at each other back and forth, back and forth. And who comes along? This is Goodfellow, okay? Coming in to just kill all of the excitement And she walks on by saying, boys, you shouldn't do this. What do you mean, Mrs. Goodfellow? You shouldn't be throwing rocks at each other. Why? Because if you throw rocks at each other, you could get hurt. I'm like, what do you mean you can get hurt? She says, well, if a rock hits you in the head, you're going to die. So you're you're telling me if a rock hits you in the head, you're going to die? Yes. And then in that moment, I went and picked up a rock and threw it at her head. And all of a sudden, this little tiny rock pegs her in the head, and I was like, you're not, you're not dead. And so she sent me to the principal's office. And, and so that's what began to happen. And so that's the first view of God. God is this enforcer. He is this, you know, rules. He's going to come around. He's the buzzkill. Okay. That's the first way that we see God. The other way that you can view God is, uh, it was funny. I was looking at uh, on Facebook, you know, the memes all over the place or whatever. And so one of them was like uh, this guy and this girl and they're talking and the girl says, man, I just want a good Christian who loves movies and has a good sense of humor. And that guy's like, I'm a Christian who loves movies and a good sense of humor. And She's like, you're great, but just not you. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, some of you in here are like, that was yesterday. Oh, whatever. And, um, And that begins to be the other view of how you see God. Dude, he's super great. You're super awesome. Just not for me. Right? Oh, I love God. Oh, wow. He's so like, yeah, God made stuff. Come on. It's just not for me. It's good for you. Not for me. That's the, I, I, I'm super spiritual, but I'm just not religious. That crowd that we see here on the West Coast. So you got those two views. You got the view of, man, look at him. He's the equivalent of Mrs. Goodfellow or he's the friend zone Jesus. Okay. That's what I like to call it. Mrs. Goodfellow or the, or the friend zone, Jesus. And what about the third option? The third option of how you see God is you see God not as this distant deity who constantly wants to be malevolent. He doesn't want to hurt you. He doesn't want to be this rule enforcer all the time. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want you to be separate from him in this friend zone way. What if God is someone who wants to be with you? What if God shows himself constantly in your life as someone who, whenever you go through things, is constantly there with you? And what if that's the pattern that he's set all throughout this, this beautiful book so far? Um, here's a quote that I have from this guy named uh, Jürgen Moltmann. He's just this German dude who writes cool things. And this is what he says. Please try and pay attention to this. It's, it's really important. Since God's sufferings in exile, the time where Israel was pulled out of their own place, were taken completely seriously, Israel's deliverance, them being saved from that situation, from exile was logically bound to seen as God's deliverance too. In this intimate bond of common suffering, God and Israel, his people, God and his people, wait together for their deliverance, for their, for their saving, Israel knows that it will be delivered since God will deliver himself and his people with him. The suffering God is the means by which Israel is redeemed. God himself is the ransom for Israel. So I read that out and you're like, I don't know what the heck you just said, bro. Deliverance, what are you talking about? And this is is the picture he's trying to say. He's trying to say that God and his people are so bound together, they're interwoven, that whenever they go through something, he's right in the middle of it. He's constantly with them. And you see this all throughout the Bible. What happens as soon as Adam and Eve show up? God is there with them. What happens when they screw up? He is amongst them. When he's trying to move all the motions of history together, either with Noah, he's communicating with Abraham, he's communicating. When Moses comes along and and he has to draw them out of this place of Egypt and they're wandering everywhere and they're trying to go to the Red Sea, God shows up in the cloud, in the pillar of fire. He's, He's with his people. Then he goes out and he says, No, no, I just don't want to just be there. Then he tells, Build them a tabernacle. Build me a house that I can dwell with you, that I can be with you in all of your sufferings. Then build me a temple so I can dwell there, so I can be amongst my people. And then this beautiful thing happens where this dude shows up and his name is Jesus and they say, Call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The whole pattern constantly is not of this distant, far-off God. It is a God who is pining, who is aggressively moving to be with you in all of your life through everything that you are going through. And if this is the example that Jesus begins to set, then God also sets that for eternity. He always consistently stays the same, and this is what he does. And all of a sudden, this text in 2.6 says this beautiful thing of well, five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took the form of a servant. He didn't want to just be far off. He says, what's your situation? Let me take on that same thing. This is what C.S. Lewis, the writer of Chronicles of Narnia, calls the greatest miracle, God becoming man. God shows up as man. Listen, you are never going to comprehend this. You are never going to understand what this means. This is one of the most pivotal things that you could ever understand in the Bible, that Jesus shows up as a guy. It's crazy. You will never be able to comprehend what this looks like. Because the heights from which he came, you will never know. You have no idea what it is to be like God and give things up. And then the second half of this is you have no idea how far he went. You will never understand the heights to which he went, and from which he came, and the depths to which he went. Because it wasn't just God coming to be man. But it's God going to be man in humbling himself in obedience to the cross. You have to get this movement from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Imagine what I'm saying here right now. When God shows up as a person, that means he went in an instant from I can wave my fingers around and universes are created in a second to now depending on a human being for survival. That he shows up as a baby, helpless. In a second, he goes from, I can do whatever I want. What? You know what? You boom. Your pants are on your head. He can do whatever the heck he wants. So all of a sudden now being so dependent on people, and he stoops so low for us. And then he pushes it even further. For the next 30 years of life, he's going to walk around and no one is going to know who he is. God in flesh is going to show up and walk around without anybody ever realizing that he's there. And he lowers himself more. Then he takes on a trade becomes a carpenter, works with, 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 with all of these materials and builds things for people. Now he has all of these clients who he's working for and he lowers himself even more. And then he comes to the place where he says, man, I'm going to tell you who I am. Reveals himself for, for who he is. And then all the people surround him go, man, you are such a liar. You're a sinner. You're the devil. You're a drunkard. And he lowers himself more that God is now being criticized by the people He created, and it goes even further to where all the religious folks says, "You are such a blasphemer! You are lying about who God is." And he lowers himself more to the lowest point to where he could ever go by hanging on that cross you will never understand the heights from which he came and you can never comprehend the depths to which he went. He didn't die as a hero. It's not like he went to war, saved a bunch of people. No, he was hung as a criminal. Humiliated in front of everyone. You cannot conceive what this means. God coming down and going lower than you have ever possibly gone before. This is what this says. This is what this is saying. And yet sometimes in the way that we think about God, we never pay attention to this. What we begin to do is we don't make the idea that God became man serious whatsoever. What we care about is the cross, which is super, super integral. Obviously, it's the most important thing. But when you start pushing the idea that God just became man so that he can go on the cross, what you begin to do is you give it no significance of its own. You can think of it as A, God became human so he could go to the cross, which is usually what we think. Or B, him becoming man has significance of its own and it means something different. It means that he is releasing, he is inaugurating, he is starting the new creation and using himself as the example. It has significance that there is a point to why he did it, why he showed up as a guy. And I'm gonna try to as best as I can show you how this works. And this is this is the point. Love cannot be content to just overcome sin. Love cannot be content just to overcome sin. It only arrives at its goal when it has also overcome the conditions to which sin becomes possible. Okay, let me say that one more time. Love is not content with only overcoming sin, it must also overcome the conditions which make sin possible. It doesn't want just the surface job, it has to go down to the roots. And then you have to realize, okay, Jesus becomes man. So, what's the point of humanity? What's the point of all of this? And this is what I want us to do. Uh, Genesis 1, 27 to 28 gives us this picture of what people were supposed to do. People, okay, us, individuals. What was our job in the beginning? Genesis 1, 27 uh, to 28. This is what God said. So, God created man in his own is in his own image. In the image of God, he created the Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, this is his command, God says to them, A, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the first thing he says is just go have fun. Make babies. This is what he says to the first people. Go, do your thing, you know, pop a couple kids out. Like, That's the first thing. Do that. Fun. Don't go too far with the thoughts. But this is what he says. The first thing he says, go and just make a whole bunch of babies and fill this sucker up. Then the second thing he says, the most immediate thing he says about what we are to do is he says, you must subdue it. And have dominion, so have rule, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. The most important thing that people are supposed to do is fill the earth and then have control over what is. God's plan from the beginning is to have a human being at the control center of creation. Okay, this is super important. God's plan is that he has a human being at the control center of creation. This is what we begin to see, verse 1, 27 to 28. So what happens? It takes like 15 minutes, and then these two go and screw it up. Okay, so then we get to chapter 3. Two chapters over, and all of a sudden this begins to happen. Uh, verse 3, verse, uh, let's go 1 to 6. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Eve, Did God actually say to you, Sh- uh, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, don't even touch it. It's key. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like who? God. If you eat the fruit, you are going to be like God. If you eat it, that's who you're going to be. You're going to be like God. So all of a sudden you can imagine her like, oh my gosh, I love pears anyways. And I get to be like God. Oh my gosh. Like this, is, this is a good moment for me. That's the goal. It's a vision. You get to be like God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so that when, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate see what just happened here? The serpent goes to them and says, listen, and it screws everything up because in this moment, they become unhuman. What they were desired to do is what they do not do. Three, four says, you will be like God. 3.6 that said that she took it, she went for it, she grabbed it and brought it back. And they ruined everything. And then you look at Philippians 2.6, the thing that we have been looking at this whole time. And it says that Jesus... Seeing equality with God, the same vision that she had. I get to be like God. It says that Jesus saw this equality as God as something not to be grasped. When Eve reached and grasped to be like God, Jesus did not. When she wanted it for herself, when she thought of herself, she became unhuman. And in Philippians 2.6, Jesus goes and says, The very thing that you grasped for, I will not. And he reverses the very thing that they did. He flips everything around. What you screwed up, I will resolve. When you grasped, I did not. When you wanted to be God, I emptied myself and gave up. And then it goes even further. Because in Acts, the example that you have is Jesus saying, listen, there is one to come who is greater than I. And you have this idea of the ascension where Jesus goes and he goes to be with the Father and he goes to the right hand of God. And what does that mean, to be at the right hand of God? If Jesus becomes man, does not grasp to be equal with God, but humbles himself and goes to be at the right hand, then the plan at the beginning ends up to work. What was the plan? God said, I want human, I want a human to be at the control center of creation. And now Jesus as man who took on the form of a servant is now at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's at the controls. He is at the control center of everything. He governs, he maneuvers, he controls all that is now. And the plan worked out because he showed up, because he did what he was supposed to do. When they took, he did not grasp and he humbled himself by obedience and even went to the cross. It's this crazy, 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 crazy concept. God becoming man means something to us. The plan has been fulfilled. He is in control. He is over dominion. He controls everything. He is in rule as the king of all, of all kings. The king who rules over all things. This is where he is. And so what does this mean for us? What do we have to do? It means pretty simply that you have to humble yourself. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to be with him, spend time with him, do what he does. You have to follow in in what he has already accomplished and you have to become like him. Those are the three tasks that you are to have. And it says that he humbled himself. He saw the interest of others more so than yourself. So what are you supposed to be doing? Humble yourself. Today, I had to somewhat humble myself, and it was hard. So right now, you know that myself and my wife are the two people in our home, and we are going to add a third. We are going to adopt a chinchilla, actually adopt a little chinchilla (laughs) for the irony of it all, and we are going to name him Thor. Why? I don't know. We're going to call him Thor. We're going to adopt this little chinchilla, and we're going to bring him into our home. We're going to treat him like a child. We're going to snuggle with him. And I didn't want him, okay? I'll be straight up. And my wife looks to me and says, if you love me, you will let me bring him home. And I said, man, I've got to humble myself and let her get this chinchilla. And now we have a third in the home, and he's coming strong, right? So this is the idea. So all of a sudden, what you have to get to is this idea of, man, what Jesus does in terms of this great epic thing that we have no control over, we have to follow also. We have to set this example. So what is humility? How do we do this? How do we act this way? How do we follow in this footsteps? Is it just by doing stuff? Um, I had the most Canadian battle of my entire life Okay, it was a Canadian warfare that I had with Trevor Linden. Okay, Uh, you guys know who Trevor Linden is? He used to be the old Canucks captain. And uh, I was on a flight to L.A. and he was on a flight to L.A. He was first class. I was not. And uh, and as we're walking through, all of the first class because they're all like, oh my gosh, I'm first class. They've already sat down. And so he was graciously putting his wife's bag away a couple uh, rows back. And so now all of our economy poor people were walking through, and Trevor Linden was stuck in the row. Okay. And so I sat there and I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait for Trevor Linden to walk to his seat. So I was like, go for it. He's like, no, you go for it. I was like, no, you go for it. He's like, no, you go for it. The most Canadian thing that's ever happened. Okay. Is happening in this moment. No, you walk, man. No, you walk. And then I got tired. You're Trevor Linden, bro. Sit down, okay? Then Trevor Linden goes and sits down. It was the best moment of my life. And, uh, and so then I go, is that, is that humility? Me giving up the time to let Trevor Linden go? No, it's not. It's not humility. Well, what about, what about when you are humbled? What about that? Maybe that's the, the, the vision of what we try to get from Jesus. Um, I went to this church in L.A., okay, and, um, and it's like a weird underground celebrity church, okay? Maybe you've never heard of such a thing, but I was there, okay? And I walked by, and I was like, you were in, you were in Step Up. Oh, my gosh, okay. Okay, awesome. Okay, wow, you have... 10 million followers on Instagram. Okay. And I walk in, right? And I'm amongst all of these celebrities and I'm just me. Okay. Not too impressive. All right. So I walk in there, I walk through those doors and it's like, oh wow, you're wearing a million dollars. You over there look like a million dollars. And I'm sitting there kind of like, oh my gosh, like I, how am I supposed to worship Jesus? And I just feel like an idiot. Like I feel like a homeless person right now with amongst all these people. And I'm I'm feeling pretty dumb about myself. Okay. So I'm sitting down, I'm trying to worship as much. I'm distracted and whatever. And so my friend who brought me, uh, we walked to the front and the guy who's, who's leading this church, uh, walks up to me and says, hello. Hey man, thank you so much for coming. I'm like, no worries. You know, it, it was a Wednesday, but I, I took the time and I came and, uh, He's like, "Dude, I really appreciate it. And it's awesome." And then in that moment, something that would shape my life forever occurred. Justin Bieber goes and walks next to me to shake this pastor's hand. And I said, "Oh my gosh, what is going on? The luscious goodness of Bieber is around me and he had these two massive, I'm telling you, massive Samoan bodyguards, okay? They were huge, like it, they would eat me with their eyes. Like that's how terrified I was of these two guys. And now I'm sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, like me, me and Bieber are having a conversation right now. Did he say a word to me?" No, but we talked in that kind of like a spiritual sense. We talked. And uh And so we are next to each other talking to this person. And in that moment, like, he's gonna say a word to me, man, this is cool. This is a big moment. I'm sweaty, but it's okay. And uh, he didn't even look at me. The heck am I? Chopped liver? Man, didn't even say hi. Didn't say nothing. Your Samoan bodyguard hip checked me out of the way, but you can't even. And in that moment, I was like, I'm nothing. I am nothing to anyone. What the heck is going on? Is that humility? Being humbled because someone's cooler than you. No. It's not. So Jesus shows up and he says, man, I'm going to be the most humble thing that has ever been experienced in life. I'm going to show up. I'm going to give up so much. You'll never comprehend this verse. You will never understand the heights from which he came and the depths to which he went. He did not just go from God to the cross because he, he wanted to have some fun. No, he went from giving up privileges of being God to dying as a criminal on a cross. Why? For you. It wasn't for himself. It's for you. It was for me. From the highest of heights to the lowest of depths that he took and he humbled himself to, into obedience to the point of death on a cross. He didn't do that just to do it. He did it for you. And you sit there and you look at that and all you should respond with is awe. That when you recognize and you read this, the lower and lower and lower and lower that he goes, the higher and higher and higher you must lift him up. He did this for you, he died for you. When you saw nothing in yourself, he saw something in you. It's amazing. And the only response you can ever have to that moment is awe. It's to sit back and go, I cannot believe what happened. I cannot believe that you are in such a position that you have done this for me. It's the first thing, awe. Then there's the second thing. What is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself but it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. Uh, Martin Luther says that all of sin is basically described as man looking inwardly on himself. It's just selfishness. That's what the center of sin is, is that you only care about you and you don't care about anybody else. And I look at that and I'm like, man, how many of my problems in life would be solved if I just stopped thinking about myself all the time? How many of your problems in life would be resolved if you just stopped thinking of yourself all the time? Your own ability that you could do it, that you could be the one to accomplish it. Uh, This this really smart philosopher guy, his name is Soren Kierkegaard, he says that spiritual pride, which is the opposite of humility, is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And even though we don't even mean to do it, we do it. The highest dream that you have, the biggest expectation that you have in your mind, if you really think about it, it has nothing to do with Jesus. Man, my highest dream is that I want to be a fireman. Man, the, my, my, my biggest goal in life is that I just want to get straight A's. And the dream that I want to have in life is I want to be accomplished. I want to be successful. I want to own seven homes. And how much of that has to do with Jesus? Nothing. Spiritual pride is when you try to live your life in a way that He does not exist. And so, what does spiritual humility mean? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he has reached a place where his ego draws no more attention to itself than any part of his body. He has reached the place where he is not thinking about himself anymore. When he does something wrong or something good, he does not connect it to the way that he sees himself. Let me make this even more clear. True gospel humility, okay? Pay attention to this part. If you're asleep, wake up. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. The whole point of humility, if you really think about it, the goal of what you are to do if you want to be like Jesus is that everything you do never comes back to reflect any way that you see yourself. Okay, I need you to, I need you to understand this. Anything you do never comes back to change the way that you see yourself. So when you see in prideful people, what they begin to do is attach what they do to how they feel about themselves. Kanye, right? You go up to Kanye. Kanye's like, yeah, man. I'm like, yeah. He doesn't talk like that. But he goes, oh, my gosh. Like, I make music, and I'm a genius. I make awesome songs. I am a genius. And what is he doing in that moment? He is building a bridge with what he is doing to who he is. Right, If you go and you are an amazing baseball player, you are an amazing basketball player, you're amazing at sports, you begin to walk a bit with a swagger. When you see somebody else who's not as good as you, you believe yourself to be, oh, I'm a bit better than them. Why? Because what you have done is you have connected what you do to who you are. The what you do is what shapes how you see yourself. The point of gospel humility is to break that bridge. Never allow, never reflect on yourself because of what you do. If Steph Curry shoots 48 for 48, gets a million and a half points, and he comes back to the locker room and someone's like, dude, you're so great. He can sit back and go, I'm not... It's just, the, it's just the basketball game. So you're putting a leather ball in a hoop. Why should that reflect who I am? And the opposite should be the same. Listen, if I put a tape recorder and I infused it into your mind and I had the manuscript of every single thing that you've ever thought in your life, Everything you've ever thought. You'd probably be embarrassed. You know, girls walking at school. It's a nice butt. You know, recorded. Sends right to me. Nice butt. Who is it? Doesn't say. Interesting. What? You know what I mean? In the tiniest of things. That's a trivial example And you know with your own head how far and deep and crazy and wretched and broken and destroyed and filthy and unclean those thoughts go. I don't have to use any examples. And then maybe one day because you're thinking so much about these things that you go out and you do a really stupid thing. Make a really stupid action. What this is saying What spiritual humility is saying. If you do something dumb, just as much as you did something good, you break that bridge and do not see yourself for that thing. If I screwed up with something that I'm really battling with, it should not affect the way that I think of myself. I can't believe I did that. I'm an awful person. What did you just do? You connected what you did to who you are. And the point of what Jesus is trying to tell us is, listen, you are not what your actions are. It's the opposite of what the gospel is. It's the opposite of what he's trying to tell us all throughout the scriptures. I was watching uh, Doctor Strange the other day, this movie whatever, so this arrogant doctor who thinks he's the stuff or whatever. And he's learning from this like martial arts martian or whatever the heck she is. And she's like so cocky the whole way through. He's like, I'm the best. Oh my gosh. And she's trying to teach him over and over and over and over and over again. At one point in the movie, she just grabs him by the face. And what she says to him is what I think Jesus is trying to say to you. She grabs him by the face. And her main point of what she wants him to learn is, listen. It is not about you. It is not about you. In everything in life, you have to do performance, then verdict. Show me what you do, and I'll tell you who you are. The gospel of Jesus does the exact opposite. It tells you who you are, and then it says, then follow through on who I've called you to be. It is not performance than verdict. It is verdict than performance. And every single one of us at times walk through life like we are on trial. And I have to do this well. I have to do this well. I have to do this well because it reflects how people see me. I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this because it reflects the way that I see myself. If I screw up, if I do well, everything comes back to who I am. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I've already told you who you are. Stop trying to prove yourself. The only expectation that I I want, the only thing that I receive is perfection. Perfection. And if it's up to you to be perfect, you will never get there. So what does he do? If my standard is perfection and they can't do it, let me do it for them. And God humbled himself and took the form of a servant and humbled himself in obedience to the point where he went to the cross And who he is is now placed on who you are. It is verdict, then performance. He has saved you. And your response is now to sit here and humble yourself to understand that you need to be saved. You have to humble yourself. You have to lower yourself like he did. Where, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, I must become less so he can become more. I have to lower myself so he can be seen as higher. That needs to be the posture of every single one of us in this room. If Jesus goes from the highest of heights to the lowest of depths, the thing that we can do is a response and say, I need you. I need you. You are no longer on trial. You are no longer on trial. He took the verdict for you. And that's the point. See, the beauty of what we get to imagine is that the last couple of weeks, we've seen people transform in such tremendous ways where we had this rose on stage last week, and as we come into worship, we're gonna put three more back up here because those are the individuals who transformed their life last week that three people came to know Jesus in a fuller fashion, in a clearer way to say, I'm going to humble myself to say that I need saving. And that's the question that we ask for you. If you're a Christian in the house, how do you affirm this? How do you think of yourself less? How do you break the bridge from what you do to who you are? If you are a non-Christian in this place, Allow yourself to think of what all of this means. Allow yourself to immerse in the idea of, do I need to be saved? And if you really looked at your actions, if you really looked at who you were, if you really looked at the the ideas that you have in your mind, you'd come to the conclusion that, man, I'm, I'm pretty screwed up. I think a lot of crazy things. I do a lot of nonsense. And if I'm my own savior, this isn't going to work. And our push to you is would you humble yourself and realize that you need to be saved and give yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these students as we come here to this place and we look at your example. We look at how you came and you fulfilled what we were to do on earth. You came and you accomplished what we could not do. And how much of a foreshadowing is that for the rest of our lives? That you have come and you have accomplished what we could not do. The plan from the beginning was for us to do a task and then you accomplished that task. The thought is that we would be in perfect relationship with you when you came and you accomplished that task and you gave that to us. You offered it to us. And we have the chance to respond in that light to go, I need to humble myself. I need to bring myself lower. That my life is not just about me. It's, it's about others. That I'm not too good to be saved. I humble myself in obedience and response to look at your grace, to look at your mercy, to look at your love and respond and say, I want to give all that I have away. And this is the call. So I pray that we are so changed and we are so rocked in our own hearts that we look to you and we are just grateful that we are in awe that we can imitate your example, that we can just be with you, that we could become like you. We could do what you did and try to our utmost to follow what you have done. And maybe we can think of our lives, not so much for ourselves, but something to give away. I pray that we would just take this and we would allow it to just, to just work on us, that we would sit on it and we would change us more and more and more and more and more. And life would not be about me. Life would be about him. And so in that, we thank you, we love you. And in Jesus' name we wanna pray, amen.